it's Nehemiah uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, followed by verses 20 to 23 and page 421 of the Pew Bibles. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah, Athaiah, son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, a descendant of Perez, and Masaiah, son of Baruch, the son of Colhazeh, the son of Hazaiah, the son of Adaiah, the son of Jairib, the son of Zechariah, a descendant of Shelah. The descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 men of standing. And then from verse 20. The rest of the Israelites, with the priests and Levites, were in all the towns of Judah, each on their ancestral property. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel, and Zihar and Gishpah were in charge of them. The chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Mekah. Uzai was one of Asaph's descendants, who were the musicians responsible for the service of the house of God. Let's continue from chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were, brought, and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba, and Asmaveth, for the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right, toward the dung gate, Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, and the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David, on the ascent to the wall, and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. 
The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshanah gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, and as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Maseiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elianai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets. And also Maseiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malachijah, Elam, and Ezra. The choir sang under the direction of Jezrahiah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. This is the word. Well, good evening. My name is James, one of the pastors here. Let, let's begin by prayer, with prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you that we can gather here tonight and uh, for the warm air in this building, for the warmth of fellowship. And uh, we ask, Lord, as we open these chapters, chapters 11 and 12, Lord, that you would speak to us clearly. Amen. And the winner is Sydney. 19 years ago, the Olympics came to town here in Sydney. It was a big event. You know that 40,000 people volunteered to help. 40,000. This is what they wore. It's on the screen. You might remember it. 40,000 people ready to volunteer. The opening ceremony, this great celebration of all things Aussie, 12,000 people performed. 99% of Aussies watched it. I always wonder, what, what's the 1%? What were they doing? She reruns it back to the future. So who knows what they're doing? But 99%, everyone was captivated by this, this great celebration of lawnmowers and deep sea and Nikki Webster. And we sang, I am, you are, we are Australian. Now, if you're under the age of 15, uh, 25, I should say, this is a blank, right? Because you were just born. But if you were there, if you can remember this, if you're over the age of 25, this moment is etched in our minds, isn't it? As a moment of great celebration because the Olympics had come. Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 was etched in the minds of those who were there because this was a people who were ready to serve, ready to volunteer, and they were ready to rejoice. But the reason was far greater than the Olympics. As we've seen in the final chapters of this Old Testament book, Nehemiah, we've seen that this book is more than just about restoring broken walls, but it is about reviving the hearts of God's people to actually want to worship Him. And we've seen over the last couple of chapters this, this pattern of revival. There's an uh, outline on the screen. 
the pattern of revival in chapter 8 always begins with the Word of God. And that should bring about repentance, admitting our fault, and then lead to obedience. And that obedience should overflow, as we're going to see, into worship. And that looks like in two ways. Serving and rejoicing. We're going to do things a little bit different here tonight. I'm going to take us through chapter 11, looking at being a people ready to serve. And then Curtis, our gatherings and music director, is going to take us through chapter 12 and ready to rejoice. Now, you may think as you look at chapter 11, gee, James, you've got the short end of the straw, right? It is a list of foreign names, right? Now, there's five times in Nehemiah where these lists come out. Now, they're here in Nehemiah, not because they want to give Bible readers a challenging time, right? They're not here as a, an alternative baby name list, right? Curtis and his wife, Joe, expecting and I made some suggestions from this list, like Asgard Smith as a name. So you're not going to get teased with a name like Asgard, right? Or like Meshazabel. Think about it. Meshazabel, come here. I mean, you just got to yell it out. You know? Or Majamin Smith, right? It's got a musical, Majamin you know. Anyway, they'll think about it, right? That's not the purpose of names like this. No, no, no. The purpose of lists like this is to show one thing. People matter. You know, in 1912, when the Titanic sunk, the record book, the log book of all those who were on that boat became so important because behind each name was a real person. First class, second class, working class. The lists are important. And though this list is full of names that are foreign to us, right? We, we might tend to avoid it because there's no Sarahs or Toms or Janes. A list like this tells us these are real people who experienced real things, who are real historical people. And it says to you and I that people matter. But it's more than just personal, isn't it? This is not just some ancient dusty archive, but there's actually some rich biblical truths in here, right? Chapter 11 is a list of those who moved into the city of Jerusalem. Now, just to get us up to speed with the story, remember that the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. The temple has been restored. The walls have been finished. But people need to move into the city. The, the repopulation of this city needs to happen because a city is nothing without people. There's going to be no economy no flourishing, no, no social activity if there's no people. In Turkey, um, some developers built a suburb which had a Disney-style theme to it. It's a picture on the screen. They built these houses, and, uh, but when they'd finished building them, right, they asked people who wants to buy them, and very few people wanted to buy them. I guess the only person who'd want to buy this is a four-year-old girl wanting to live in this Disney-style suburb, but... They don't have much money, but no one wanted to buy them, right? No one wanted to live there. And so it became a ghost town. Jerusalem was at risk of becoming like a city like that. Nobody in it. So what did they do? Have a look, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots 
to bring one out of every ten to them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. Now, what's happening here is at random, 10% were chosen by casting of lots and then told to move into the city of Jerusalem. Now, we think, why is that such a bad thing? Isn't it great to live in the city? I mean, who wanted not want to live in a city like Sydney, you know? We, we don't understand really what they're going through, right? Because we think city, we think upgrade, right? That's where the, the vibrancy, that's where the hustle and bustle, that, that's where it's all happening, the action. But for God's people in this day, it was not the case. Because if all you've known work-wise is farming, all you know is harvesting wheat, lambing, to move into the city meant you had to change your job. If all you've known is small town, quiet country life, to move to the hustle and bustle of the city, that's traumatic, right? If all you've known is living in a place where, where your family and your neighbours and, and your community are, and to uproot and to move, that's big. It, it was not an upgrade. It was a sacrifice moving to the city of Jerusalem for God's people. And that's why verse 2 is quite amazing. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So some of them put their hands up and said, though it's going to be a great personal cost, I'll go. I will serve. I will lay down my rights for something greater. You know, you know in our world, people seek to move up. We seek the upgrade. Rarely does anyone intentionally downgrade. But yet that is the mark of God's people. That's the mark of a Christian. Dan and Liv Webster, who used to be with us here at church, left living in the Lower Shore for Namibia, Africa, where there's worse education for their boys, foreign place, different people. Why? So they could serve the local church there. My dear friends, Matt and Lisa Pearson, mission partners at 10 a.m. over at Neutral Bay, they left living in the inner west, to live in Gumbalanya, in Arnhem Land, the top end, where it's uncomfortable, hot, humid, and lonely. Why? So they would serve the local church there. See, once you've understood that Jesus intentionally downgraded to live amongst us, for us, that changes you. And that is the mark of a Christian. That is what is to mark you and I out from others. To give up what is familiar, what is our right, what is our preference, so that others can flourish. So Nehemiah 11 is about a people who are ready to serve with humility, right? But you'll notice as this list gets read out, they're not all the same. They're not all the same type of people moving into the city of Jerusalem. They're different. So some of them, verse 3, it says there, these are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. And it lists them. So some of them had the task of overseeing people and leadership. But some of them, verse 9, Joel, son of Zikri, was their chief officer. And Judas, son of Hasanua, was over the new quarter of the city. In other words, 
Some of them were administrators, right? They loved systems and processes and Excel, right? But others of them loved maintenance. Verse 16, Shabbatiah and Josabad, two heads of the Levites, who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. These guys are different, right? They like to work with their hands. Less talk, more do. They're into working bees, that kind of thing. But then there's Mathaniah, verse 17. Son of Mickey, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph. The director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Some less do more talk as they pray for others and intercede for others. And then there's Uzi, verse 22 who's one of Asaph's descendants, who were the musicians responsible for the service of the Lord. They love to sing. Here's the thing. This is just a taste of who God's people are. And they're not all the same. They're all different. All playing their part in a different way. But you know what I love? My favorite verse is verse 12. Three words. And their associates. See, there's all these people named, but there's a whole bunch of people who are not named. And yet, just as important in terms of the people of God. Raymond Brown says this, The story of Christian work and witness over the years is something far more enriching than a record of great names. It is about millions of unremembered but committed believers and ordinary church members. See, in this list is a very important truth that God has made his people different. And that is a good thing. That God has made us, his church, and given us, in different ways, different gifts and abilities to serve one another. That you have a gift, and it is probably going to be different to the person sitting next to you. Now, here's the thing. You may feel about as useful as a white crayon, but that is not the case. You are needed. You have a gift, a God-given gift by the power of the Spirit to serve others. So let me just say three things on this. When it comes to what gift you have, it's important to realize at first it is a mystery. It's not like in finding out you go to the letterbox, open the envelope and be like, oh, Apparently I've got the gift of prayer and hospitality. Who knew? There you go. You don't, get, you don't find out like that, right? That's not how it works. At first it is a mystery, and so you need to dip your toe into things to see, has God given me this gift? I think of James Boardman, right? He's a member at 3.30. He used to work for Deloitte as an auditor. And someone said, hey, why don't you give kids ministry a go? Now, those two things don't necessarily go together in my mind, kids' ministry and auditor, but he gave it a go, dipped his toe in, and he found that actually God had given him a gift of discipling kids, but he would never have known that if he didn't give it a go. That's why when it comes to serving, we don't say, sign up and you'll be there for 20 years. No, 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 we encourage you, observe, give it a go for a day and see, is this where God has gifted you in? The second thing is, we want to be people marked by humility and encouragement when it comes to serving and gifting. So it is absolutely important that you encourage others as they're using their gifts and affirm them. Because often we can feel insecure and think, oh, I think I got this gift, but I'm not really sure. We need others to validate and say, you know, brother, when you do that, 
gee, I'm encouraged by it. You know, sister, the way you do that, gee, you're gifted that. Whether it's in your connect group or one-on-one, spend the time encouraging mother and pointing out saying, I think you're gifted in this. I think God has given you ability in this and you are blessing others. And one more thing. You know what the danger is in Nehemiah's day and our day? It's because his list is full of names and full of numbers. The temptation is to think, oh, look, I'm not needed. There's a lot of people here in this list. There's a lot of people in this church. And look, I'm just not needed. But you are. You are needed. You are maybe consider yourself like a, a pinky or a small toe. Tiny. But gee, it is just as important as any part of the body. And we feel its absence. We need you. You know, a number of those 40,000 volunteers still have their uniform for the Olympics. But it's in the cupboard, collecting dust, remembering years ago, those glory days. And when it comes to your gifting, you might be the kind of person who remembers the glory days when you used to serve, you know. Back when I was younger, had more energy, more time, before work, whatever it might be. But maybe it's time for you to fan into flame the gift God has given you and to pull it out of the the cupboard and say, you know what? I want my best days to be my future days. The best days are the ones to come when it comes to serving the people of God. You know, as the the list of Church by the Bridge is recorded, when, when the credits roll on our time, what will it say about us? Will we be known as a people different but yet keen to serve with humility? Will we be a people ready to serve? But we're also going to be a people who are ready to rejoice. Thanks, James. We're going to continue on in Nehemiah 12 together. Um, But before we dive in, I just want to ask you, what sparks joy for you? Uh, A few people know what's coming. Marie Kondo is a Japanese organizing consultant. She has a Netflix TV show. And she will help spring clean your life by asking the question, does it spark joy? If not, you throw it out. So I just want to share a a couple of things that spark joy for me. The first um, is this man, Harry Kane. Uh, I hope there's no Liverpool supporters in here, but this is Harry Kane. He plays for the most beautiful Tottenham, beautiful club in the world, football club called Tottenham Hotspur in North London. He, uh, I can tell you that he has um, played 181 games and scored in 125 of them. So most of the time when he's on the pitch, he's, you're probably going to get a goal. And I get up at crazy hours of the morning uh, to have the joy of watching my team, fingers crossed, win. Um, Another thing that sparks joy, which maybe more of you might be able to understand, um, sometimes I go to sleep looking forward to waking up to this. It's just that, that morning coffee. just sparks that joy. Um, as you see on the screen, that is actually a coffee that I made. Um, I feel like, you know, putting hot coffee in a martini glass would sell very well on the low North Shore. Um, 
But for me, I, I was a barista for many years, and I'm from the inner west, so, um, you know, coffee is not just consumed, it, it is an art. It is an art. Um, instant coffee does not spark joy for me. So, what in your life sparks joy? What in your life gives you that feeling of deep delight? And when do you celebrate? When do you rejoice? As gatherings director, I, I love church. I love that God is here with us, that we get together to meet with him, to hear from him through his word, and that we have the privilege of responding to him. But I recognize that you may not be ready to rejoice. As we dive in uh, and continue the journey of God's people in Nehemiah, um, we're at this point of time where they've done it through threats of death, through mockery, opposition, lies, They've done it. God's people have returned to build this wall. And even though they only worked with one hand, with the other hand holding a weapon out of fear of attack, they've built the wall in 52 days. So why are the characters of this story ready to rejoice? There's three things we can learn. Firstly, God's people are thankful. We pick up from Nehemiah 12, 27. They've been on a journey of restoration. Now God's people are getting ready to celebrate. They sing. But what type of songs do they sing? Do they sing psalms, hymns? You know, that can be very divisive in church. Or do they sing indie folk? My favorite, do they sing hip-hop? Probably no one's favorite here. But let's read verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... The Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. They sing songs of thanksgiving. God's people are ready to rejoice because God's people are thankful. And down in verse 31, he assigns two large choirs to give thanks. That is literally translated as choirs of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving embodies this occasion. Thanksgiving embodies these people. And they're thanking God because not long ago, they were without a home and without a hope for the future. But God, by his faithfulness, has restored them, not just physically, but revived them internally. God is in a never-ending pursuit of people who kept turning their backs on him. So they are thankful because God has been faithful. Now, there's almost, if, if anyone's read their Old Testament here, you almost expect Israel, um, at the end of completing this wall, to just pat themselves on the back, high-five everyone, and say, God, look at what we've done. But they actually get it right here. It's not just been straight to rejoicing, has it? At these past few chapters, they've been made aware of their sin. They've confessed and received forgiveness. They've trusted God's good law. And they want to live for him. I want to worship him. God, being patient, faithful, and constantly loving, has caused his people to be thankful. The second thing we learn why they're ready to rejoice is because God's people are intentional. From verse 31, here's what's going on. Um, so as Nehemiah, as God's people, as people from outside the village all gathered together, they get their leaders, their, their musicians, their musical instruments and Nehemiah organizes two choirs. And he sends one choir to the right, led by Ezra. 
He sends another choir to the left with him following at the end of procession. And they go up on top of these walls. And it's at this moment that I think we can forget that just 52 days ago, these walls did not exist. Nehemiah had inspected them and they were in ruin. But now, as they have this beautiful moment of physically remembering why they came to Jerusalem, they remember that they didn't come to just build a wall. They came to build God's honor. They know that every brick laid was intentional and was with a purpose to make God the center again. And as they sing on top of these walls, they're singing songs of thanksgiving. The center of their worship is the house of the Lord. It's a temple where God dwells. And that's where we see they end their procession in verse 40. This is a worship gathering full of rejoicing and intentionally God-centered. God's people are thankful, they're intentional. And the third thing, God's people are expressive. I really love verse 43. Let's read that together. It says, They offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Uh, Here's the thing, sacrifices and joy is not a normal connection we make, right? Sacrifices take away from us to become a gain for someone else. But with God, their process of handing over, of sacrificing time and words and their plans and their gifts for his kingdom gives them great joy because that is God's design. Through the fear and intense labor and sacrifice, God gives his people great joy. And verse 43 continues. It says, the women and children also rejoice. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. They are not holding back. This isn't lip service. This isn't begrudgingly uh, kind of being told what to sing by an overly enthusiastic song leader. It's also not being prompted by just words on a screen. This is true worship. This is a revival of their hearts. It is beautiful, intergenerational, expressive worship. And they are beautifully expressive for no other reason and the fact that God has given them great joy. Um, there might be some people like me uh, in the room tonight um, that when, when you've been to a wedding reception, there's just a moment that you dread. Um, the, there's been some speeches, there's been the entrees, there's been the dinner, and then especially after when the bride and groom have done their speeches, you know it's coming. And the dance floor opens. I, I hate it, I struggle with it, I can't dance. Um, and people say, because you're a musician, you should be able to dance. And I say, come up and sing a song, please. But, but um, after a while of, of not taking part in dancing at weddings, I, I, I kept seeing the joy of my wife Jo and, and my friends dancing. And so I thought, look, I'll give it a go. And so I would join in just for one song and, you know, with... With a bit of dancing, uh, I, I can move my arms. I, I just don't know what, like what these do. Someone was telling me before um, to, to do some soccer drills. So I don't know, yeah, maybe I can. But what I realized when I was up there was that um, it was such a delight for my wife and my friends to have me with them, to experience that joy with them. What I also realized was 
No one was comparing my dance moves to one another. No one was laughing at me. No one was writing down any reviews and posting them online of my dance moves, thankfully. It, it was it's messy and it's beautiful. It might not have felt natural, but uh, it was mutually for the joy of myself and of others. We see God's people rejoicing in Nehemiah. But how do we join in? How do we be ready to rejoice? Firstly, know your need. Hearts of thankfulness begin in an awareness of our need. If you have been sick and someone brings a meal over to you, your heart becomes full of thankfulness. They have met you in your need. If you've been doubting yourself, and you haven't even expressed that to anyone, and someone gives you that word of encouragement just at the right time, they have met you in your need, and your heart is full of thankfulness. And we need to know that we are continually a people in need. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you might want to look back. Cast your mind to when you first decided to follow Jesus. I hear tears of joy from men and women struck by the first time what it means to be loved by God, to be forgiven by Him, to be given life and purpose in Him. All of our sin, all of our mistakes, all of our loneliness, Jesus has met us in our need. Do you live every day in recognition that we still need the forgiveness of God? And does that turn to you a heart of thankfulness? You become ready to rejoice when you know your need. Come ready to rejoice when you own your place. And you might be wondering in this book of Nehemiah, it's, it's, very, it's a long time ago, who am I in this story? If you love Jesus today, you're, you're not just bystanders that happen to be in a building together. If you're sitting in church as God's people, you are the choirs. The sopranos, the altos, the tenors, the basses, the tone deaf, the lot. You know what the best part is? There's no audition. This is our family. These are our songs. This is the sound of our rejoicing. The, the music team, they prepare and they rehearse, not so that you will leave with an impression of how great they are, but of how great and glorious our God is. They want to hear the sound of your voices singing. That's why they're serving. One of the first things we share with our sound people is that as they mix, uh, it's not, the most important thing is not the sound of the band, most important thing is the sound of God's people singing, of the choirs that you are a member of. So own your place as a member of the choir of thanksgiving. Lastly, to be ready to rejoice, you need to receive your joy. Have you received the joy that God wants to give to you? Verse 43 says, God had given them great joy, and that the women and children also rejoiced. Men. You know what this means? That assumes that you're already rejoicing. And can we just own this for a minute? We're just pretty bad at emotions. We don't know how to share them. We do have some platforms where we can be really emotional and really expressive. And we have, so one of those is sport. And um, we have other platforms of rejoicing, um, like sport. And, and I, I literally cannot think of others. We don't have a model of rejoicing, both in the church and outside of the church. 
But God wants to give you a deep joy that is unshakable, that is anchored in Christ. As we see here, the, the joy of the Lord is not just in their hearts. They have received their joy and it has infused every bone of their body. If God had given them great joy, how much more are we to rejoice in light of Christ? That God the Creator stepped into our need, that He was intentional in going to the cross, and who for the joy set before Him died in our place. Why? That we might receive His joy. Church Brothers, I I love leading you. I love leading you, and I love seeing God's people respond to Him. But wouldn't it be amazing if every man, woman, and child was visible? with the joy that is given by our God. The sound of our rejoicing being heard throughout Kiribati. I'm going to invite the band up now. I know that joy might be a hard thing for you to comprehend or feel. But I want you to know we have joined these choirs of thanksgiving. We are in the daily need of God's mercies. And we have received a joy because not what we have done, because what Christ has accomplished. The 2000 Sydney Olympics, which gathered everyone together for a moment of celebration, now a distant memory. As God's people, we are part of a celebration that will not end. We will enter that. That is promised to us. And this today, church, This is a taste. The heavens are rejoicing. God is rejoicing over us. So let's stand. Let's sing and give thanks and rejoice in our Savior.